0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How to find a financial advisor.
1: A relationship with an advisor you can trust and crucially afford is something that younger FT readers often tell us is hard to come by. Could the solution to the problem rest in our pockets. With less than a month to go until the general election, financial advisors tell us that they are getting calls from a lot of worried clients. We look at what's troubling the wealthy and, crucially, what steps their advisors are suggesting them to consider. And the rise of the 40-year mortgage. Paul Lewis, FT Money columnist and presenter of BBC Moneybox, is here to share his own worries about extra-long loans. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. Would you like to talk to a financial advisor? Goodness knows there are enough things to discuss at the moment. The election, the fact that stock markets are at an all-time high, devising a long-term investment plan. I could go on. But rather than meet face-to-face, would you be happy chatting to an advisor... On your phone. Joining me today to discuss is Damien Fantato, the Deputy Editor of FT Advisor. Welcome, Damien. Hello, Claire. So when you think of a financial advisor, most people probably think of a a middle-aged man in a suit. But the person on the other end of your smartphone won't be one of those.
2: Yes. So I go to my fair share of uh, industry conferences and the audiences can often be male, male, male sometimes stale um not always um and i think the um there's been a, um, a long-standing attempt in the industry to address that um i think the average age of a financial advisor is about 55 or so it's normally mm. in the mid-50s and the one of the ways that uh, some companies are looking to address this is through technology through uh chatbots and um, other sort of Robo advice solutions which actually have no human being involved in them at all and this is actually regulated advice because there's no there are no rules uh, that the FCA has set out that say that advice has to be provided by a human being it just has to um, be suitable you have to get a fact find you have to have a, a suitability assessment and um, a capacity for loss assessment. But there's no, actually, there's no actual rules that say it has to be provided by a human being.
1: I so say the difference between intelligence and artificial intelligence. But tell us about your own brush with a digital advisor. There are a couple of apps available and you've downloaded one and tested it out.
2: Yes, so it's not actually an app. It's a website, this particular one. There are a couple of them are apps. I used MyEva, which is the uh, solution offered by... Uh, Wealth Wizards, which is um, part owned by the insurer LV. And it was an interesting experience, actually. I sort of got involved with it by accident because I was scoping it out for um, an article that I wrote in Thirty Money over lunch, just thought, oh, well, let's have a look at this and see see what it's like. And it was actually so simple to sign up to it that I actually signed up to it and got going. Accidentally over my lunch break, and it was interesting. Actually, it was relatively. It was relatively simple. Um, you had lots of emojis. Yes,
1: because tang- Eva is mm. definitely a female yes, so, person. Yes, she, she Eva, talks
2: to you. Eva is a human. Well, Eva is a is a character that sort of talks and interacts with you through this sort of chatbot function. Uh, She sort of asks you how you are and uh, encourages you to continue. She's still encouraging me to continue. Actually, I'm still occasionally getting the odd email from, (laughs) from Eva telling me why I haven't written my will. Um, And yeah, she uses lots of emojis. Um, It's slightly undercut when suddenly she, she provides you with all the terms and conditions and all the various FCA um, numbers. But She asks you a few questions, and this is the fact-find element. She asks you a few questions about, are you married? Do you own your own home? How much do you have in savings? And then, do you have debt? Do you have debt as as well? Um, And then she'll provide you with a list of um, things that you should do. And some of these are relatively straightforward for people who might be, um, you know, Involved in more involved in their personal finances, like building up a cash buffer, mm-hmm. um, paying off any debt that you might have. But some of them are maybe not so obvious to people. So there's writing a will, as I mentioned, um, then there's finding out who gets your death and service benefits, and um, various other bits and pieces, which I have to admit I wasn't entirely on top of. <laughs>
1: Well, I had a look at another app called Multiply, um, which hasn't been launched on Android um, yet, but it is on Apple. And I mean, again, um, seems very f- simple to use. I didn't, I didn't sign up to it com- completely, but it it basically starts with, you know, a long questionnaire about you, your goals, your financial position. It's quite easy, really, to fill it on, a, mm. fill it in via um, your phone. And for younger people who perhaps would prefer to interact um, with something like that rather than going to go and see an advisor um, in their office, Um, it could be preferable. But Mm. these things have taken an awful long time to be developed, even in the early stages that they're in now, right?
2: Yes. So these companies take this sort of stuff quite seriously because providing regulated financial advice is a big deal. Um, If you provide regulated financial advice, then your clients get the benefits of being covered by the Financial Ombudsman Service, by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. Um, it's quite a big stamp of approval that the FCA is giving you if you're a provider of regulated financial advice. And um, a lot of these companies have put years into the development of these services. Um, Certainly um, Multiply, the one that you used, their chief executive said that that was the case, and they've actually employed financial advisors to check that the financial advice that they're giving is um, up to scratch. These financial advisors don't actually give financial advice, but they just check that the financial advice is suitable.
1: And um, just going back to to, to MyEva, um, they do have advisors mm. who, who are there who you can be referred to if, um, if, if Eva herself can't work out what's the right thing to do. Yes,
2: and to a certain extent this goes towards the limits of this technology at this particular moment in time um, because MyEva decides if there are certain things that it can't do for you without the intervention of a human being, then it will direct you towards the financial advisors that Maiva employs. Um, And an example of this is um, defined benefit transfers, for example, uh, which is a very contentious uh, area at the moment. And if you want to do one of those, then they will say, please... This way, sir, and you'll talk to a human being.
1: But, I mean, realistically, the people that this product is aimed at, they're not going to have a final salary Mm. pension. It's aimed at young working Mm. professionals um, employed by companies who are looking to maybe boost their pension savings um, a bit and find out more about that, start a stocks and shares ISA potentially. It can recommend um, a range of low-cost tracker funds. But in terms of how it's paid for, Um, At the moment, with MyEva, it's the employers who are picking up the bill.
2: Yes, so there are two ways of uh, paying for MyEva. Either you're uh, in the position where your company has decided to pay for it, or you can pay for it yourself, uh, which is through a £2 a month subscription. And there are also other fees involved if you want to do something more complicated. So if you do actually want to speak to a human being, then you have to pay for the privilege of doing so. And... I've gone to the. Trouble. I I I was geeking out this morning. Printing. I've printed geeking out, out.
1: I've never heard. And this i printed incredible. out some of
2: their um, some of their their, cost, menu, of their menu of options. So if you want a retirement advice report, that will cost you five hundred pounds. Um, that's a personalised report and recommendation for those within six months of retirement. Um, and there's an on there are ongoing fees and uh, charges for certain other things. So, for example, if you want invest, investment advice, you have to pay 0.25% of the total market value of the funds and the management.
1: But, yes, but nevertheless, are, it gives it gives people hmm. options where they can see easily and transparently um, yeah. uh, what what they're paying for. Multiply, it's a little bit different. It's saying it's free advice, but you took a, yes, an issue
2: well. On. That is strictly speaking accurate, I suppose, because the actual advice is provided for free. But if you want them to actually implement the advice, then you have to pay. So they will advise you to invest in a Vanguard life strategy fund and they say, would you like us to do this for you? Here's how much it will cost. And this is uh, commonly known as contingent charging in the industry. Um and it's relatively popular for cer- certain aspects of um, financial advice.
1: And um, I suppose if you don't have very much money, mm, then a, a, absolutely, yeah, an alternative yeah. to the to the more common charging structure of uh, an advisor mm. taking a an annual percentage fee from a portfolio. Well, Damien, we've loved having you write about these issues for FT Money, but of course, the audience who normally consume your journalism are the financial mm. advisors themselves what do they make of Eva and co are they threatened by her pinging and emojis
2: (laughs) I don't necessarily think many of them are because a lot of them think that as you said earlier this this is aimed at people who by and large have very simple needs this is aimed at people who are not saving anything at the moment or saving entirely in cash and they could probably benefit from either setting up an ISA or maybe putting some of their savings to work in the market in some sort of low cost um, tracker fund. These are people starting from absolutely zero, whereas a financial advisor would see their role as being more involved in people who have more money to, to play around with. In fact, I, I would imagine that most financial advisors would not be remotely interested in serving the clients that Maiva and Multiply are interested in because it's just not economical for them to do so. Financial advisors are much more interested in people who have got um, slightly more complicated tax issues, people who might be worried about um, passing on their large amount of assets to their um, children, People who have got, you know, a lot more money to play with.
1: <laughs> well, thanks very much there to Damien Fantasso Deputy Editor of the FT Specialist publication, Financial Advisor. You can read Damien's big feature, putting the AI into financial advice, online now at ft.com slash money. And as part of this feature, we've also published FT Advisor's annual list of the top 100 human financial advisors, which is worth consulting if you're ready to upgrade from a chatbot to a more expensive, old-fashioned form of the service. Well, my next guest is a financial advisor, and he isn't a chatbot or called Eva. As part of FT Money's special issue on financial advice, we wanted to find out what kind of conversations the wealthy clients are having with their advisors right now. And my word, there's a lot of chatting going on. Alistair Fullerton is the co-founder of Lay's & Co., a wealth advisor based in the city of London, conveniently a stone's throw away from the FT's office, and he has come in to join me in the studio. Welcome, Alistair.
3: Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me.
1: So, I should say, we've talked a lot about advisors being men in suits, but you're wearing a very fetching jumper. And I have to say, Damien, who um, we've just uh, spoken to, is wearing a cardigan. I mean, is this the new era?
3: I think so, yeah. It's uh, it's more comfortable than a traditional suit. Um, plus, they're expensive. <laughs>
1: Well, we would expect a financial advisor to be on top of the cost. But thank you for breaking away from your busy phone lines to come and talk to us today. But what are your clients wanting to talk to you about and your colleagues at the moment?
3: Um, To be honest with you, it is more of the same that you probably will have guessed. Um, It's the Brexit. It's the election. Um, And I think actually, if you take a bit of a step back of, of why people are still talking about that it's it's perhaps that over the last few years there's been a bit of a gradual build-up of anticipation that people are waiting for a, a market crash or a correction and there's perhaps been lots of false peaks um on that journey certainly with brexit Lots of false deadlines um, and in which case each one of those peaks people have expected is this the time for some clarity or is this the time for a market crash Um, and at the moment there's another sort of um, deadline or marker in the sand with with it—the the election in December. And I think people are just looking at that and saying, is that the moment we will get some clarity or is that the moment whereby we'll um, fall off a cliff and there'll be a big market correction? So we're having to answer a lot of questions like that at the moment. But unfortunately, we're none the wiser. Um, we're in the same boat as everybody else. So it's difficult to give any clear answers for clients.
1: now. At the time of recording our podcast, none of the major parties have released formal manifestos, but they have all outlined very ambitious spending plans that people fear could spell tax rises in the near future. Now, in advance of any policies being released, what kind of things are your clients fearing could change?
3: Yeah, I think people are instantly worried about an extreme Labour government and completely sort of ripping up the rules with income tax, with any pension legislation, things that uh, are sort of typically um, attacked when it comes to sort of looking for public spending because it's no surprise that or it's no secret that the NHS, um, that the police force, these, these sort of public services need a boost and that money has got to come from somewhere. Um, I think people are somewhat our clients are somewhat shell shocked in many respects by the amount of attack on their pensions and surrounding pension legislation. And this school. has
1: been under the Conservative government.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's left them with a bit of a, a bit of an opinion that anything goes from any government uh, when it comes to their own personal savings. So I think more so than ever, we're noticing that people just feel vulnerable about their existing savings and what could happen to them in the future.
1: And. What kind of actions do your clients perhaps want to take and what are you trying to um, advise them to do? I mean, in an extreme sense, people might be thinking, well, I'll put money offshore. Um, in a less extreme sense, they might be thinking, in case there are any changes to inheritance tax rules, I should give money away if I'm intending to sooner rather than later.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's our job to, in that respect to try and really give a bit of perspective to everything, um, so instead of worrying about things that are outside of, of their control. We, we try and turn clients' heads towards things that they can control. So now more than ever is a really good time if you've got a financial plan, whether it be an advisor or, or with yourself, to really go back and revisit what your exposures are. So things like your attitude to risk, um, your asset allocation, the objectives of the financial plan, um, and sometimes a simple exercise – as looking at revisiting the assumptions that your plan has been built on can be enough to give a bit of peace of mind in a sort of short-term volatility area. So I think people, broadly speaking, since about 2012 should, if they've had money invested, have seen some fairly healthy returns. So, for instance, if they revisit the assumptions of a plan, and they may be built on 4% a year growth. And that, will, that plan will see them through to their retirement goals. And actually, if they look back since 2012, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. They might, may have been averaging 7% a year growth. Um, in which case the plan's got some in, inbuilt pragmatism around it, whereby times like this, when there's volatility, when returns might be harder to come by, they're already um, ahead of the curve in some respects because of the previous performance.
1: Now, a separate investor survey from UBS this week revealed that many wealthy investors are upping their cash levels, um, even though most of the people surveyed had an average of a quarter of their portfolio in cash. Is this kind of like cash grab something that your clients are pitching
3: for? (laughs) We we always try to stress that sort of the investment within a financial plan is a a means to an end rather than the be all and end all. Um, So we're long term planners as opposed to short term traders looking at opportunities. Um, We generally advise to not make any short term alterations to your financial plan um, in terms of Converting your funds into cash because then you enter the realm of trying to time the market when it comes to reinvestment, which is notoriously hard to do. Um, For those thinking about adding to their saving pots, for instance, maybe this year's ISA allowance, you've got the grace period of of having until April the 6th to be able to make your, your contribution. Um, And that will buy a bit of time, but also there's specific techniques that you can use when investing from cash into the market. So something like phased investments is quite a good strategy at the moment, whereby you drip feed your said investment over the course of anywhere from six to 12 months, typically to gain a little bit of pound cost averaging. So you're you're less reliant on what might happen in the news tomorrow.
1: Now, as well as defensive actions taken to protect wealth, many FT readers, of course, are eager to trade um, on the uncertainty. Um, Sterling is one way. Our colleagues on the Lex team have written about the Boris Johnson trade, which is buying unloved UK stocks in the hope of a Tory majority and a Brexit deal, which would cause markets to bounce, allegedly, Um, and the Corbyn trade, um, where you would short shares in the large utility companies that Labour has indicated it would nationalise, or going long on FTSE companies that don't have much business in the UK because they could potentially go off um, and list on a foreign exchange if Labour's plans um, to give away 10% of share capital to to, to workers come come into force. I mean, this is all pretty speculative stuff, but nevertheless, people are interested in having a punt.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think, like I said, our general approach to investment is long-term planning as a means to an end. But um, that's not to say that people do like the idea of some short-term gains and short-term trading. So um, I guess the advice from us if a client came to us and asked about a specific short-term trade would be to ring-fence an amount of money that they would be happy to lose 100% <laughs> off, Um Don't remortgage your house in order to fund it. Um, and once you've decided on the correct amount, go ahead and place your trades and, and, and keep an eye on how it pans out.
1: Well, finally... You've been here listening to our last item about advice by a chatbot. Do you fear Alistair being replaced by an emoji called my Alistair in future?
3: Um <laughs> I, I think we've all got to be looking over our shoulders in some respects. Um, because I think there is a lot of power within those technology tools. Um I think in our industry, as far as I can see at the moment, I think there's always always be, going to be a need for some form of human advice just because of the amount of complication. Um, the amount of inferences and judgments that sometimes a human advisor can make when looking at a case, uh, as opposed to a sort of simplistic, um, smaller smaller client, for instance, um, I think in our industry specifically with the human advice, um, there's room for innovation. So there's room for both. I think um, so. There's room to for human advisors to be able to use technology to help perhaps lower their operational costs. pass those cost savings back on to clients to make advice more affordable as a whole.
1: Well, thanks very much there to Anastair Fullerton, the co-founder of Lathe & Co. You can read the FT Money feature about all of these issues now on ft.com slash money. And do you know a young person who is good with money or curious about how the financial world works? Then please tell them about the FT's competition to find the young personal finance journalist of the year. We have teamed up with the London Institute of Banking and Finance to run the contest and we're accepting entries from young people aged between 14 and 19. All they need to do is write a short article on topics including what could the bank of the future be like, don't say shut or online, what are the financial issues facing young people, or personal data is the new gold discuss the winners will receive 150 pounds in cold hard cash and we are hoping to publish the winning entries in ft money next year if you want to enter and view all of the terms and conditions go to ft.com slash young journalist that's ft.com young journalist that article is in front of the ft paywall so anybody can read it and the competition itself is part of the ft schools program i'll squeeze in a quick plug for that if you haven't heard of it it is well worth knowing about all secondary schools around the world not just in the uk can get free access to the ft.com website for pupils age 16 over and they're teachers, so it's really worth telling your old school about this. All of the details are accessible from that same link, ft.com slash journalist. Those of us who've bought a property dream of the day that we can pay off the mortgage and rid ourselves of what is usually the most significant monthly outgoing. But the new generation of mortgage-free wannabes could be drawing a pension before that day arrives. And this is of grave concern to Paul Lewis the FT Money columnist and presenter of Radio 4's Money Box programme, who joins me over the line now. Welcome, Paul. Hello, Claire. So as you write in your column this week, there's something about the word mortgage that listeners may not be aware of. Well, yes.
4: I mean, it's about 700 years old, this word. It comes from the French. And, of course, the first half, mort, gives you the clue. It means death, hmm. and gage means a debt, basically, or an obligation. And the idea is that if you pay it off, then... Uh, the, the, then the debt is dead. If you don't pay it off, the property is dead. That's the use of debt. But my concern is that the way the industry is going now, it could be you that's dead before you pay off your mortgage because they are stretching mortgages. It used to be 25 years. Sort of, I'm saying. In our day, I'd certainly say in my day, Claire. Mm, um, now, mine, mine too. <laughs> <laughs> now, 60% nearly of mortgage offers can be up to 40 years. So the product, 60% of products, can last up to 40 years. Now, 40 years is just about the whole of your
1: working life, at least. And if you consider, as you say, the rising age of the average first-time buyer is 33, then, you know the average buyer is going to be 73 by the time they pay it off. Yes, so possibly uh, well into a
4: pension. And that's assuming that that is their only mortgage. And and one of the um, lenders, Yorkshire Building Society, that's introduced a 40-year mortgage recently, says they hope it will encourage people not to treat their first home as a stepping stone, but as a kind of, well, a chair, if you like, where they'll sit out the rest of their lives. So they'll buy their first home, and it will be their only home until they're retired. I'm not sure if that's practicable.
1: Of course, you know, they never need to move, have children, get divorced. Um. No, because if you look at the
4: statistics, um, and I know statistics are one thing and human lives are another, but, you know, 42% of marriages ends in divorce. Um, nearly two and a half, more, over 2.5 million people in their middle life expect to leave their job to care for either older relatives or indeed grandchildren. And the calculation done by the insurer LV equals that, after 40 years, if you start your mortgage at 30, end it at 70, one in 10 of couples will experience the death of one partner or another. So there we have the mort in mortgage. because, And, of course, they will normally get it paid off by insurance. But, you know, it's a thought. One in three will be severely ill. One in 10 will actually die. And over 40 years, things
1: really do change. Now, we should say mortgage lenders are stretching the life of loans like this largely because of rising property prices.
4: Yes, and this has happened a lot in the past, as you will recall. FT readers will recall. Whenever they talk about having to it boost affordability, <laughs> they come up with a scheme. Well, now it's 40-year mortgages. In the past, you'll remember it was interest-only mortgages where you didn't even have to worry for a long time, about how you were going to pay the loan off, you just paid the interest. So it was almost like renting or renting the money to buy it. There were endowment mortgages. They were the first interest only ones. Well, they didn't do too well, did they? And then, of course, there was self certification, which meant you say to the mortgage lender, Oh, I earn 120,000 a year. And they say, OK, we'll work it out on that basis. That was not a good idea, and it's all to boost affordability when rising prices are cutting mortgage lenders' business. So to keep their business going, they come up with these wheezes, and in the past they have all led to catastrophes. I don't know what catastrophes there'll be for these 40-year mortgages, and I probably won't be doing your podcasts at that time anyway, Claire, to be honest. But (laughs) some people will still be around and they will experience themselves. I'm very worried about it. And I think people should think very carefully about 40-year mortgages. 25 years, I may be an old fuddy-duddy, seems a much more sensible time. Indeed, 10 or 20 years seems a more sensible time to borrow the money over for
1: me. It gives you more flexibility. Well, thanks very much, there to Paul Lewis, freelance journalist and BBC Moneybox presenter. You can read Paul's column. It will take a long time for forty-year-old mortgages to die online now at ft.com/slash-money. And you never know; I could still be presenting this podcast when I'm eighty. I may, I may well still need to work. If my pension doesn't work out. But that is it from the Money Show this week. If you want to get in touch with us or our team of experts, you can email us. Our address money at ft.com or follow us on twitter for the latest news updates our handle is at @ftmoney and you can also join our money group on linkedin just search for ft personal finance we'll be back next week at the usual time thanks very much goodbye
0: join capital group ceo mike gitlin for a new edition of the capital ideas podcast